Hello, once again, it's uh, my joy to uh, take you through the book of Revelation, one of the most remarkable books of the Bible, and uh, no doubt one of the most neglected in the life and the ministry of the church. So last week, we looked at part one of our study, and this week, we turn to part two. Now, as we have seen, the book of Revelation has to do with those things that have to take place in the world, the church, and in Israel, in order to facilitate the unveiling or revelation of Jesus Christ, that is his second coming. In that sense, then, the book actually is about Jesus, and we need to remember that. Of this, an angel reminded John, as recorded in chapter 19 and verse 10, and uh, he told him uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, meaning that at the heart of this incredible oracle, at the very center of this amazing oracle, is the person of Jesus. And naturally, uh, even the events that are so graphically described in the book, upheavals of an incredible nature, we have to see them in the context of setting the stage for the revelation of Christ. So, as we now move to consider the main teaching of the book, we should briefly consider the following today. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the book is about judgment. We need to know that. The book is about judgment. This is a major theme of the book since it constitutes that process whereby Jesus brings his enemies to his footstool so that he might rightly stand up and crush them. It's also that process whereby he judges them with the hope of repentance in mind. In addition, the book also has to do with Jesus judging his people, that is the church of the living God. She will be evaluated and judged so that she may repent, be purified, and made ready for his revelation. In chapter 19, we have that remarkable chapter, the climax of the book, that describes so graphically the second coming of Jesus. And just before he rides out of heaven in that amazing horse, that white horse with the name, the word of God on it, just before he does that, the Bible says, the bride has made herself ready. And the book of Revelation tells us that it is through a process of purification and evaluation that the bride prepares herself for the second coming of Jesus. Indeed, the word of God tells us the judgment before it strikes the world actually comes upon the household of God. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 where it says that judgment begins with the house of God, and then it moves to the world so very often. So Jesus turns his gaze upon the church first of all uh, in this remarkable book, and his message in this regard is encapsulated into the one that he gives to the seven churches of Asia. He judges them. He 
He refines them. He speaks to them. He evaluates them in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. But before proceeding, it is important to make a few comments about God's judgment as reflected in Scripture. And this is important because of the virus, the coronavirus, that we are all uh, subject to at present. And the Bible teaches that the God of the Bible judges his world and his people. There is no doubt about that. He has not lost control of the world, and certainly this includes the powers of darkness. The powers of darkness are not rampaging through the world as they desire without restraint. The God of the Bible is sovereign. He has not lost control of his world. The powers of darkness, they not being omnipotent, omnipresent or omniscient, actually and unknowingly serve the purposes of God in the matter of judgment. Now, you need to hear that. The powers of darkness, not actually being omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent, they do, in fact, unknowingly serve the purposes of God in the matter of judgment. And we see this supremely reflected in the death of Jesus. The devil induced Judas to betray Jesus. We see this time and again. You can read it in John chapter 6 and verse 70, where Jesus acknowledged that he had 12 disciples, but he said one of them is a devil. We see it in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 2 and verses 26 to 27, where it states clearly that the devil induced Judas to do what he was doing that he would betray Jesus. The devil was behind it. And after the Last Supper, when Jesus gave Judas the sop and he left, the Bible says he went out and the devil was in him. So the devil induced Judas to betray Jesus since he was determined to kill him. Remember, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent and he's not omnipotent. He's not God. So he was determined to kill Jesus. Jesus acknowledged the power play of the powers of darkness in his arrest and crucifixion. Remember, in the garden uh, of Gethsemane, when he was arrested, he said, this is your hour and the hour of the powers of darkness. He acknowledged that behind his arrest and his crucifixion, was the plan and the determination of the devil. And yet the Bible clearly teaches us that unwittingly they played into the very hands of God. These demonic powers unwittingly played into the hand of God and thereby they fulfilled his purpose for the redemption of humanity. In other words, the thing that the devil desired the most and planned for became his undoing, his defeat and his downfall. And uh, the same thing is happening today in terms of the coronavirus in that it is entirely devilish 
and demonic. You have to know that. Yes, when people say this is of the devil, it definitely is of the devil. It is entirely devilish and it is entirely demonic. But by the sovereignty of God, it is rightly judging the world and purifying the church. This has been a time when many thousands, hundreds of thousands actually, in the church of Jesus have been examining their hearts, drawing closer to him, repenting of things that they tolerated in their lives that they knew were not of God. This has been a time of introspection, meditation, humility and repentance. I read yesterday an article that they estimate that uh, in, in the United States of America, over 400,000 people have come to Jesus because of this pandemic. Isn't that amazing? So it is demonic. It is devilish. But God has permitted it, just as he permitted what Judas was doing, in order that his purpose may be fulfilled and that his church may be purified. And indeed, that the world may be judged. God permitted Judas to do it because on the cross he judged Jesus in our place. And in fact, thereby the devil was defeated and absolutely overcome by the sovereignty and the power of God. So this great manifestation of the judgment of God that will take place at Armageddon, the Bible teaches here in the book of Revelation that there's going to be this final great day of wrath. And it takes place at a place in Israel called Armageddon, more correctly, the hill of Megiddo. And you can read about it in Revelation 16, verses 12 to 16. And there's no doubt in the passage that this great day of God's judgment of Armageddon actually is orchestrated by the devil. Because that chapter says that three unclean spirits of demons go out into the four corners of the earth to bring all nations down. This is the final attempt of the devil to destroy humanity and to shovel every man, woman and child into hell. But actually he plays directly into the hands of the living God. A day of his judgment. So in their mad drive to destroy the human race, they will play into the hands of God to achieve his purpose and his triumph and in the end guarantee their own destruction. How amazing that is. So that's this principle of judgment, this, this balance between the work of the devil and the sovereignty of God that is reflected in the book of Revelation and in the wider pages of Scripture. First of all, a few thoughts then about judgment. Secondly, now we turn to Jesus' message to the seven churches of Asia. Jesus' message to the seven churches of Asia. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation record the evaluation or judgment that Jesus pronounces over his church in the world. And I encourage you to pick up your Bible and read these two chapters and read them again and again. But it's here in these two chapters that Jesus evaluates or judges his church that is living in the world. 
And this is reflected in his dealings with seven churches that were real and were located in Asia. So he's going to address seven churches that are in fact real and they are located in Asia. Interestingly, they give us a remarkable reflection of the state of the church as it journeyed through 2,000 years of history to the present. And that cannot be a coincidence. As you take each one of them and you align them up with the historical journey of the church, you have a picture and historical record of the state of the church up until the very present day. Also, his message to them, taken all together, if you take all seven together, you look at them, you study them, and you put them all together, they give us a picture of what the church in any area of the world should look like. If you look at all the things he commands and all the things he says that he wants to have take place in the local body of Christ, and you put them all together from these seven messages, you get a picture of what the church of Jesus Christ should actually look like. And that is why we should so closely study Jesus' message to the seven churches of Asia. So important. Ministers and pastors uh, of all types, leaders in the church who want to build the church of Jesus should have a look at the seven churches of Asia and thereby they will see what he's calling them to build. That's very important. One thing is clear from the early chapters of the book of Revelation, and it's this, that the church's high calling is to reflect Jesus. That is why in chapter 1, Jesus is seen actually only by the light that is cast by the seven golden lampstands. In other words, John hears a voice speaking to him. He turns. He doesn't see Jesus. You can read it. He sees seven golden lampstands. And these, we are told in the chapter itself, represent the seven churches of Asia. And the light that they cast suddenly brings into focus the incredible person of Jesus. You can read that in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. The glory of Jesus' person, as John sees it, is a message in itself and a lesson to the churches. It's important to get that. I'll say it again. The glory of Jesus' person, as John sees it, is a message in itself and a lesson to the churches. So his feet are of burnished bronze, meaning they are a symbol of judgment. His eyes are a flame of fire, meaning a symbol of his holiness. And uh, his hair, we are told, is white as wool. And that is a symbol of his divinity. And we are told that he wears a priestly garment, which is a symbol of of his atoning work, his sacrificial work on behalf of each and every one of us. And finally, his voice is like the sound of many waters, like a great waterfall. And that is a symbol 
than of his sovereignty. So as you look upon Jesus, as he presents himself to John, you have in this remarkable expression of his glorified person a message of who he is. And that is astonishing. And uh, these churches, they lack one or two or more of these attributes. And so you will find that he applies them to them as he speaks to them. He that has eyes like fire, he that has feet of burnished bronze. And uh, so he, he addresses their need. And uh, that is incredible. So we need to look at his person in the light of that. And uh, it's uh, really fascinating to see that of the seven churches that Jesus addresses, only two are commended. Only two are commended. That is the church at Smyrna and the one at Philadelphia. And uh, in terms of the one at Smyrna, it is to be noted that the devil, the devil, says Jesus, is about to throw some of you in prison. But again, in so doing, he is playing into the very purpose of God. He tells them this. This is a church that enjoys no rebuke. These are people who are standing fast in the face of persecution. And Jesus says, the devil will put some of you in prison. And the reason is, he says, because God is going to test your hearts. So the devil fulfills again in this judgment the very will and the very purpose of God. The same lesson taught us again. Jesus is about to refine them even more and test them. How wonderful that is. The church at Philadelphia, by contrast, because of her faithfulness, is about to have a new door of opportunity and ministry opened up to her. He says, I op I've opened up a door for you. You have a little power, but I've opened a door for you and no one will close it. What a wonderful message. Now, the other five churches of Asia are riddled with all sorts of failure, spiritual failure. And uh, these are what they are. The lack of love for Christ. He says to the Ephesian church, you've lost your first love. That zeal, that sense of enthusiasm, that sense of delight, that sense of joy in following Christ. He says, you know, I know you've lost it. What about you? Have you lost that? What about me? What do you think? And uh, he upbraids these churches for sexual perversity, all sorts of perversity outside of the boundaries of the word of the living God. It's like a disease in the world today. That the Bible says he knows. And he upbraids them for it. He upbraids them for lawlessness. Lawlessness in the church. And he upbraids authoritarian and cultic leaders. He calls them the Nicolaitans. He says he hates them. And uh, 
The word Nico means power. The word Latians means laity. It means power over the congregation, the laity. And uh, they've got themselves into positions where they almost become cultic and they dominate the people of God in a way that Jesus never, ever wanted them to. He upbraids them for idolatry, serving other things, putting other things before him. And no doubt there's much idolatry in the church. It could be in my heart, in your heart. Idolatry is giving interest and attention to something more than you give to Christ. It could be just a hobby. It could be anything. It could be a sport. It's not that you actually bow down and worship it. It's just that you are so dedicated it, dedicated to it that it supplants the place of Jesus in our lives. So we need to think about this today as he speaks to you and to me. And of course, as we know, with the church of Laodicea, he upbraids them for lukewarmness. They're neither hot nor cold. They're going along doing their religious duty. They're going to church every week because they know they have to. They tithe, they give, they get involved, they're faithful, but actually they lukewarm. It's just an obligation and a duty. And he says the most gross thing, actually. He says, if you persist in this, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Quite a statement. It speaks to me. I hope it speaks to you. Now, he calls them, therefore, to repent. That is to turn around, to change their behavior. And he calls them to overcome. In every letter, he who overcomes, there's a promise to an overcomer. And this call to overcome is consistent. And it even appears later on in the book of Revelation with reference to the church's battle against Antichrist. And you can read that time and time again. Revelation 14, 11 to 13. Revelation 13, verse 10. Revelation 21 and verse 7. This call to overcome. We can define an overcomer. And this is important for you and for me to know. We can define an overcomer as a failure who gets it right by the grace of God. An overcomer is a failure who gets it right by the grace of God. That means there's hope for you and for me because the grace of God will help us. He says, he who overcomes, he promises the most wonderful blessings in the future. And uh, as I said, it has to do even with the church's battle against the Antichrist. The Apostle John was himself in tribulation. He tells us that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. As he endured under the Antichrist of his time, which was embodied in the Caesar of the Roman Empire. They had Caesar worship. He was an antichrist, 
another Christ. The Bible tells us that many antichrists have come and the church has battled them all. And even John was exiled under the authority of the antichrist, the Caesar of Rome. This is Malcolm Heading.